Happy New Year uh, from Chin Music, our baseball show at TalkNorth.com. Today you're listening to Roy Smalley, former Twin Star, current Twins broadcaster, Lavelle E. Neal III from the Star Tribune. I'm Jim Suhan from the Star Tribune. Brandon Morton's our producer. We're going to talk a lot of Joe Mauer. We're also going to get into some of the pitching additions the Twins have made. Uh, we're going to say goodbye to a former twin, unfortunately. Uh, we're talking about the Diamond Awards. And I do have a question for Lavelle about catching depth in the organization in case they make any off-season moves. Uh, let's start with Joe Maurer, though. Want to let you know where you're coming to from the Aquarius Home Services Studios. Thanks to Aquarius Home Services. Thanks also to a couple of our widespread sponsors around the network. Twill in the United Galleria, this clothing shop where I get all my clothes, and TSR Injury Law, 612-TSR-TIME. Best way to listen to this show or any show you like at TalkNorth.com. Subscribe to your favorite podcast app. It's free. It's the easiest way to listen. And thank you for listening. We do appreciate it. All right, let's start with the big topic. Uh, the votes have been rolling in. Uh, later this month, we'll find out whether Joe Maurer made the Hall of Fame on the first ballot. I think we all know he's going to make it eventually. The question is timing at this point. And Lavelle, you wrote about it recently. Let's start with you today. Do you think he gets in? And do you think there are any good arguments for him not getting in right now? Uh, you know, I, will, I, I went to this thinking that uh, I think eventually he would get in, but I, I didn't think he was going to get in on the first ballot. Uh, but now I'm thinking there's a shot. Um, I'm not a big fan of people who release their ballots before uh, the announcement. I wrote a column about that a few days ago. Um, I don't think it's fair to the candidates. That's a big thing to me. But based on those results, Joe is tracking pretty well. Um, oh, boy. I just cut off again. No, you're good. We, we can hear oh, you. Okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, right. based on the results, he's tracking fairly well uh, to the point where – and. And Jim and, and Roy, every time I talk to a, a, another voter, they've always said, you know, his 10 years as a catcher is enough to overlook the five years as a first baseman. And um, that's been a kind of a consistent message I've gotten from my my uh, contemporaries as uh, this vote has approached. And I think we're seeing some of that here. So now I'm thinking that he's got a chance. And if you just look at it and you compare him to other players in his position, he did things that no catcher in baseball has ever done with the three batting titles in addition to the um, uh, the MVP in, in 2009. Um, and people who don't want Maher in are claiming that the 10 years weren't enough. And uh, the other criticism is, is that, uh, which I think is a weak one, is that look what he did in the playoffs. Now, I think if you've done well in the playoffs, it can help. But if you do do well in the playoffs, it, it shouldn't hurt, you know. Um, so I'll, I've always had a problem with that um, that that argument um, because in baseball it's not on one guy; <laughs> it's on a, a twenty-five or twenty-six man roster. Um, now uh, eight of the guys in the lineup. So why are we hanging this on one person? You know, Ernie Banks's career was fantastic, and he I don't think he ever played a playoff game. So um, I think he's getting in. Um, and that's a little bit of a change from a couple months ago because I, I thought he showed well. I thought he would show well this year, but I think he's got a shot now, which could really be great for this uh, for this baseball town and baseball what do you think, region. Roy? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Roy. What do you think? Uh, I agree with Lavelle. Um, I I don't I don't know if he gets in. I mean, it's been so weird. The truly great players that have not gotten in on first ballot. And so, I, I mean, if, if Joe – I think Joe uh, Joe's a first ballot guy. There's a lot of guys I thought were first ballot guys. 
And if they didn't get in, I, I don't I don't see how Joe does other than other than, uh, you know, the 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 winds are shifting a little bit. It's not so uh, seemingly hard ass about, um, you know, not voting for somebody just because it's their first year. Having said all that, Joe's a first ballot Hall of Famer for me. Uh, for all for the things he did as a catcher, I totally agree with um, Lavelle's uh, source who said, you know, the 10 years he was a catcher, you know, winning batting titles and gold gloves. I mean, catchers don't win batting titles. Um, and uh, gold glove catchers generally <laughs> don't uh, hit the way Joe d- did. Um, I, I just don't think there's any there's any question that that he should be. And what I'm I'm encouraged by what you know we're kind of getting uh, as Lavelle said it looks like he's he's going to show really well so that means you know at the very least there's no bs about you know I don't know if he really is blah 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 the 10 years that he played as a catcher were absolutely hall of fame uh caliber and so you know he's he's going to be in this year or next time um for sure in my view the only other thing that I'll point out, as much as I agree, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with, you know, 15-year career, let's look at, at the 10 years as a catcher because they were unbelievable. And it just points out that, and, and that's the way it should be, and it just points out the travesty, and I'm going to be able to get on my soapbox again, the travesty that it took the Veterans Committee, whatever it was, for Tony Oliva to get in the Hall of Fame based on the eight years that he, his first eight years. Were um, fantastic. Uh, it, I, unbelievable. I mean, yeah. uh, batting championship as a, a bang tiles, a rookie. Um, and uh, I, I think he won it the next year. But I, I do know in the eight years, he won, he won um, two batting titles, finished second three times, I think, and, and third twice, and won a gold glove in that era. And he was an all-star every year. And so I think the idea expressed that a player's 10 years being Hall of Fame caliber are enough to get him in, regardless of the fact that he didn't play another five years at that position or that it it was more lackluster the last five years or whatever. Same should have been said for Tony. He was a dominant, overly dominant player at his position in his era or in any era and to hear uh, and see what they're saying about Joe. And I agree with it wholeheartedly and I'm happy as hell for Joe that that's the thinking. It just pisses me off all over again about Tony. You know, um, and to me growing up a Chicago bears fan, cause I'm from the South side uh, to me, Tony Oliva was Gail Sayers for me. Um, the first years of his career were absolutely fantastic, unstoppable. Both guys. You couldn't stop Sarah's. You couldn't stop Tony at the plate. You know? Um, so I always believed that Tony was a Hall of Famer. And that's before I even moved to Minnesota <laughs> and had to pay attention to Hall of Fame voting closely. It was just a little baffling to me that he, he wasn't in already. So I'm glad he finally got his day in the sun. And Jim Cott as well. So yeah, you and you guys, go ahead, Roy. Do you have more, Roy? No, I'm just gonna. I, I'm sorry to derail the you know the Maurer conversation no. a little bit. But it just no, got it's a good me, topic. It just got kind of got me riled up again about Tony. <laughs> yeah, well, and 
and listening to you guys talk led me to a few points I'd like to add. Uh, first one was when Maurer retired, I, you know, I, I'd grown a little weary of watching him just be a part-time first baseman who didn't hit very much. And so I, I knew I had this kind of bias from watching him closely over the last few years and knowing that he wasn't himself, knowing it wasn't healthy, dealing with concussions. Uh, and so what I did was I sat down to write a column. I said, okay, I'm going to throw away every preconception I have, every feeling I have about Joe Maurer, and I'm going to start fresh and look at his entire career and try to as objectively as possible determine whether he's a Hall of Famer or not. Because at that point, I think the feeling about Joe, I think had shifted more toward the negative just because he hadn't been able to perform at his at his expected level for a number of years and hadn't been able to stay on the field. So I said, okay, let me just get rid of all that and just start over and just look at him as a statistical profile and just look at his accomplishments and compare them historically. And by the time I got done comparing him with other catchers and all of other hall of fame catchers, I was like, okay, yeah, he's a hall of famer. He just is uh, all the reasons you guys have both mentioned uh, his historically good player at a very difficult position where you very rarely see a great combination of, of outstanding defense and outstanding hitting a historic uh, first three batting of titles for an American league catcher, an MVP award, uh, you know, career batting average, career on base percentage. I said, okay, yep. He's a Hall of Famer, no question. Uh, I also think that the winds have shifted because I remember when I used to talk to other baseball writers about potential Hall of Famers, so often big milestone numbers were invoked. Did he make the 3,000 hits? Did he make it 500 right. home runs? Right. Did he right, put right. up 300 victories? And I think what has changed is players – don't necessarily play long enough or stay healthy enough to get to some of those milestones anymore. Certainly not the pitching milestones that we're used to. Nobody's going to get 300 wins again, the way things are going. Uh, I think people have gone more toward looking at per game or per season analytics, looking inside the numbers more. How great was this person really compared to other people, their position, uh, what they're trying to do. And I think that's another way that Maurer has been benefited. Uh, you know, you look at what he did with the bat, and the glove when he was in his prime. And here's the other thing. If you're going to put Kirby Puckett in, and I voted for Puckett on the first ballot, and he got into the first ballot, Kirby Puckett had 10 dominant years, uh, and then he didn't get to play much longer because he went blind. Right. And if 10 great years is going to get you in, then Aleve is in, and then then Maurer's in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's the other thing, Jim. I also think that the local assessment of Maurer is different than the national assessment of Maurer. I agree. Uh, yeah. uh, the, the Minnesota baseball fan um, sees the $184 million uh, contract tagged to him and expected 30 homers a year and 120 RBI and, and uh, 1,100 OPS, you know, annually. Um, but those are people who, under, who did not understand um, – how complicated or how nuanced being a catcher in major league baseball is. And he called great games. He was a great pitch framer. He would be among the best pitch framers in the game. If uh, that stat was applied during his playing time. Um, and he could hit and was fairly, you know, dur uh, well, I want to say fairly durable, but he was, a he was able to catch like 140 games a year when he was uh, going well physically. Um, 
And I think that just gets lost because people expected more from him and the whole playoff thing as well, which I think this is a terrible, terrible argument. But yeah, I, I think those, to- I think that's a great point about the about the local uh, sentiment about Job not being anywhere close to what the national the correct assessment the national assessment uh, is and and about his you know catching and framing. I mean, there wasn't anybody better blocking, there wasn't anybody better throwing. And as far as framing goes, can you imagine? I mean, think about he had some early years with some really good pitchers, but, you know, but I mean, even later in his uh, career, later in his career, I mean, he he played a lot of seasons with really mediocre pitching and, and uh, I, I think contributed to get the most out of that. So, I mean, I just, they're just you, you, there's a lot of nuances about about Joe, all of, all of which add up to Hall of Fame. Uh, caliber, but the thing that you brought up, Jim, about the winds changing is encouraging to me because here's the way I feel about uh, about the you know the big big giant um, key numbers, three thousand hits or five or six hundred home runs, five hundred home runs, whatever it is, and, and any of those that are pointed to. Just because I, I don't think it cheapens the Hall of Fame I mean, at, at all. You don't have to be um, one of the top 10 guys that's ever played the game and that's it, or 20 guys that have achieved you know, those milestones. If you were a dominant player uh, for a fair number of years, eight, eight years or longer, let's say, a really dominant player at your position in your era – then I think it's good for the game, it's good for the Hall, it's good for fans, for those people to be in the Hall of Fame and be remembered for how good a player they were. Now, were they, you know, as good as Ty Cobb? Shit, I don't know. Were they as good as, or were the, number, the numbers aren't as good as Willie Mays? Should they not be in? People can make up their own minds about the hierarchy in the, in the Hall of Fame. You go to the Hall, you go to Cooperstown, you go, well, Andre Dawson, man, look, he was a he was a great player, and then you go look at holy cow, look at Willie Mays, and that's okay. In my view, it's okay to have a recognition that in the Hall of Fame, uh, all players there deserving. There are some that were, you know, all worldly. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be all worldly, in my view to be in the Hall of Fame. You can be all worldly in the Hall of Fame and just be better than all the other great players. Is there a player in the Hall of Fame, when you think about the Hall of Fame, is there a player that either of you look at and go, oh, God, just shouldn't be in there? Harold Baines. Okay. And I grew up in Chicago. I grew up a White Sox fan. Harold Baines was like one of my sports heroes as a young baseball fan. Harold Baines has no business in the Hall of Fame. None. All right. The only reason he got in through the Veterans Committee is because Tony La Russa and Jerry Reinsdorf were on that committee, and they pretty much railroaded everyone into allowing Baines to get voted in. I got a problem with that. I also think Don Sutton may be a a questionable candidate as well. For me, it was Bill Mazeroski. Yeah. Uh, Wonderful defensive second baseman. He got in the Hall of Fame mainly because he was good at turning the double play. Uh, Offensive numbers were not very good. Uh, He did have the one grand, truly grand slam uh, to win a World Series, which is one of the great moments in baseball history. Uh, But a good defensive second baseman who turned the double play, to me, that just didn't rise to the level of Hall of Fame consideration. 
Rabbit Moranville. Ooh. <laughs> Go way back. <laughs> well, I mean, that was, and maybe maybe the rabbit really did deserve, in, in my definition of dominant player at, at his position, his era, you know, all, I mean, he hit 280 or some damn thing and it, at a time when Ty Cobb was hitting 480. Yep. So it kind of it kind of jumps out. Maybe the guy was uh, was better than uh, than the Oz at shortstop. I don't know, but I mean, it always made me laugh. I I laugh about Rabbit Miranda because I all these uh, back in the before the winds were changing days, which is you know two years ago maybe. Um, people would talk about all the, you know, he didn't do this, he didn't do that, and all these other guys. And I'm going, and I look back through, you know, the, some of the stats of some, some of the Hall of Fame players, and it, that, that really jumped out. It's like, okay, how good a defense, how good a shortstop was he? I mean, <laughs> in that era, to hit, you know, sub 300 or whatever it was. So there's I a lot. Of, there, I, I think there are. I, I think that you can make a a qualitatively based decision on whether a guy was a truly dominant player at his position in his era. I mean, and Harold Baines was a wonderful hitter. I mean, a wonderful hitter. Uh, but I, I, Lavelle, I think you've, you've said it, you know, correctly. I, I, I don't think that he was, he was a hall of fame player and he wasn't as good defensively. Uh, and um, he, the numbers, as far as him being dominant, in, in his era, uh, you look at all the other outfielders. And Harold was wonderful, and he beat us a lot. Every team I ever played for, he he, he beat us one way or the other. But um, not at, not the dominant player at his position in his era that, that other players were. And it just also points out the corollary to my you know my Hall of Fame hierarchy treatise. There are a lot of really 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 good players that are not in the Hall of Fame and shouldn't be. But they were but that takes nothing away from how good of players they were. Right. And I think with Harold, I, I mean I wanna I mean, like I said, I loved Harold. It was a great story. Bill Vec like watched him in high school. Uh he came out of the Baltimore area. I think he was a third overall pick behind behind Sean Abner and I can't remember the second pick. God. Uh I think he was third wait a minute, was it Molitor? Hold on here. Um it uh it was it's a great story and he was a hell of a right fielder to to knee injuries had forced him to be a DH. He had a cannon for an arm. So I mean he was a really really good good player. I don't want to take that away from him. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of you know being a Hall of Famer, just I don't I don't see it. I just didn't see it. And um, and I'm a White Sox. I was a White Sox fan then at the time. So um, drafted by the Chicago White Sox in the first round. Uh, 1977. He was the first pick out of St. Michael's, pick. Maryland. Bill Gullickson second by the Expos. Paul Molitor third by the Brewers. And of course, it falls off after that because you don't get that. You don't do that well at the top of the draft very often. No, no. I I, I was headed toward Molitor when I was like kind of mentally ratting. I must have had another draft. When I was thinking about Sean Abner, but uh, yeah, that's a heck of a. That's a heck of a threesome there at the top of the draft. You don't have too many more than Bob Welch was later on in the first round. Uh, Dave Henderson, wow, wow, last pick of the round. So, Hendo, um, last pick, yep, by Seattle. Good guy. I covered him for a year in, Can- in Kansas City. Uh, yeah. Good stories. He was kind of like the old soul in the clubhouse. Always had a story for everything. So, But, yeah, um, like I said, Baines was my man, but he's not a Hall of Famer. 
All right, we're going to talk about lesser catchers than Joe Maurer here in a second. Uh, and a lot of most catchers are lesser catchers than Joe Maurer. First of all, I want to remind you we're coming to you from the Aquarius Home Services studio, and we want to thank Aquarius Home Services. Scott for Aquarius, wishing you a happy new year. And happy, how can we be only halfway through winter? Want some good news? Now is the time to replace your old furnace and AC with a new high-efficiency whole home heating and cooling system. Because at Aquarius, you can install it now and not pay a penny until next year. Visit AquariusHomeServices.com and schedule your free estimate today. Financing offers subject to available credit. Aquarius, earning the right to be recommended. Also, a reminder, uh, if you're clothes shopping, go to Twilio Dining Galleria, my favorite men's clothing shop. Scott Dayton is a, a great guy. He'd probably be in there. Say hello. Tell him we sent you. Also, if you're ever injured, remember TSR Injury Law, 612-TSR-TIME, 612-TSR-TIME. Also, check out our new show on TalkNorth.com, Dawn of Sports with Don Mitchell. We've had some great guests, including Jim Cott was our, actually our first guest. Uh, check out that show as well. And thank you for listening. We do appreciate it. What is the catching depth like in the Twins organization right now, and if they decided or were able to move Vasquez to save a little money at backup catcher, who would take that place? Lavelle, uh, I can go because um, uh, of my visits to um, CHS Field to watch uh, various Major League Twins play for the Saints. Um, they have a catcher named Jair Camargo, who's a very interesting guy. Solid, non spectacular catcher. Huge power at the plate. Huge. I've watched him hit 450-foot home runs. Uh, it would be really entertaining to watch him hit in the majors if he gets that chance. Um, Jair, I believe, is 23 years old. So um, he's he's not, you know, it's not like he's an aging guy. He's right there in a the wheelhouse for getting caught up to the majors. I think the Twins are more comfortable dealing um, Vasquez because they have Camargo. But... If you look at a bigger picture here, not many teams can say they went through an entire season with just two catchers. The Twins somehow lasted the entire season with Vasquez and Ryan Jeffers behind the plate. Didn't have to deep dip down for catching depth because of an injury because uh, both those guys stayed healthy. Um, if they do trade Vasquez and they promote Camargo to back up Jeffers, um, I don't know who the next line is. Uh, Tony Walters was at. Uh, St. Paul as well last year. He's 31. Um, they got a kid named Patrick Winkle, double A. He's 23. But none of these names, I don't think any of these guys are listed in the top 30 Twins prospects. So it would be thin. And they may, if they decide to go the Vasquez route, and if they're able to find someone to take Vasquez off their hands, they probably would look for a veteran catcher, I think, to simmer at St. Paul. Makes sense to me. Um would you want them to hold on to Vasquez or look for somebody with a little more offensive ability, Roy? Um, I don't have a strong feeling about that. I, I'm intrigued by you know, what Lavelle says about Camargo. Um, I did, you know, I have seen his uh, his stats and and uh, pretty good offensive numbers in the minor leagues, and then last year really good uh, at Triple A. So it's over over 800 something OPS. And so we look at a guy like that and the bell says he's solid, not great behind the plate uh, and has this tremendous power. Potentially he's 22. I, then I get back to let's give him another year in triple a and, and 
he can absolutely dominate that that league, and then maybe we really we really have something. I if they come if he comes, I mean, and Lavelle, you probably know. I mean, if this guy's just a career backup catcher, uh, then you might as well get him up here and not and not pay somebody else. But if he's got a chance, I can't think of a worse way to you know mess up a guy who's got a real chance than to give him you know, four at bats every, uh, every three or four days. I, I, I just like that for a 22 year old guy that's got potential. It is interesting. The MLB.com top 30 prospects for the twins lists, uh, Ricardo Olivar as a catcher outfielder in a ball, 22 years old. They project him to hit the majors in 2026. And then their next, and then a 29th ranked prospect is Noah Cardenas catcher, uh, in high a, uh, 24 years old, projected to hit the major leagues next year. Uh, that's a fair, but that is a fairly advanced age for that league. So I don't know how to how to read that one. Yeah, 20 when you when you're in the, when you start going 23, 24 in a in a ball, you're 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 wondering. But the weird thing about catching, though, some guys don't reach the majors until 27, 28, and end up having six or seven year careers because you know they can handle pitchers and they're functional, not because they're like great hitting prospects, but because they're good catchers. So. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at the Twins depth chart. They've got eight players, eight catchers at rookie at rookie ball last year. Eight, you know. So they're they're just trying to find something that sticks, and it, it's a, an increasingly hard, more difficult position to to handle. But I, even though when I say that, I wonder once the once the automatic strike zone comes into play, you know, how's that going to affect evaluation of catchers when you don't have to worry about framing and and things like that. So. um it's a really interesting position, but like I said, I think the Twins were lucky last year not having to dip down and call the catcher. Hey, can we talk about framing for a minute? Yeah. Uh-oh. Because that just that brings up something else that kind of grates on me. And I, when I think about Joe Maurer and how he framed pitches, he did it the Hall of Fame way. He did it the age-old way where he, his hands, uh, his glove hand, so soft – and he was so unconcerned about screwing up uh, that a, a ball on the glove side, he he didn't catch with the with the thumb down and you know be, catch the ball going you know toward a right hand hitter on the you know, glove side. He caught it with a thumb up and he just kind of moved his body and he just kind of he just kind of caught it so beautifully that it was it looked like a strike. And on the other side of the plate where you have to catch the ball uh, on your his arm side, you have to catch the ball thumb down. It was the same way. He wasn't snatching it and ripping it back into the strike zone. I see guys now, and, they, and they're all taught, you know, you got you to gotta frame pitches. And I see guys catch a ball eight inches outside the strike zone and rip it back into the middle belt high. And I'm going, if either that is ridiculous – <laughs> or then we have no business ever thinking that an umpire can can call a big league game one way or the other because if that's going to influence a, an umpire the way that there's a there's a ball I think catchers nowadays actually take pitches away from their pitcher ball three inches below the knees and they catch it and rip it up into the into the uh, middle of the zone it's ridiculous to me and if that's going to influence an umpire bring me the electronic strike zone quicker than I ever want. 
I, I, I remember you talking. I remember talking. Go that's ahead. That's good. For, then the game is the game. Well, the thing is, is that, um, you know, they feel like they want to take advantage of a, maybe an umpire not being, you know, to odd his game here. Um, when I talked to, I did a story on pitch framing a couple of years ago in spring training <laughs> and one of the twins catchers was like, yeah, around here we call it F U for fooling umpires. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, that, that was the thing, you know, making a, making a pitch that wasn't a strike look like a strike. And I think that that whole mindset has just changed catching to the point where you see, and it looks bad on TV when a, a pitch is way off the plate and the catcher's trying to snap it back in the zone. I mean, just like, uh, you really think the umpire is going to fall for that? But I guess it happens every now and then, especially if Adrian Hernandez is behind the plate. Yeah, well, my point is, my point is, Angel Hernandez, they don't have to rip it back in. He's going to miss that call anyway. <laughs> <I> mean, <that's, laughs> and, and it, it just... It, 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 I, I mean, I, I know that's funny, and I think it's funny too. But it's, but I'm dead serious. It's also about true. It. You don't, yeah. You don't yeah. have to. You don't have to try to influence him that much. If a ball's eight inches outside, he's got a chance to miss it. If you if you bring it back to four inches outside, then he'll call it. That's enough for him. That that's enough. So, and I think a lot of umpires are like that. And I just think this whole framing thing is so overdone. If you don't do it like uh, like Joe did it. Uh, then you don't get to call yourself a friend. I uh, I'd love to see how Eric Gregg's strike zone would fare in today's uh, analysis too. Oh my, he was quite a character. I still remember that one. Uh, who was the pitcher in the playoff game? Um, Levo. Levo. That's right. Uh, good yep. lord, he had a he had an eight foot wide strike zone. Yeah, I met him once. He was a character, man. He was a character. I it was in. Uh, St. Louis, I think I was working for the Kansas City Star, and I was doing some story. I can't remember. Was it Denny Nagel? I think I was doing a Denny Nagel story or something. I can't remember. And um, uh, I was sitting next to Rick Hummel, and Joe West was behind the plate. And, like, between innings, Joe West was looking up at Hummel in the press box and doing the signal, like, I need a ride. And I was like, what's that all about? Well, he wants to go to Missouri Bar and Grill, so I got to pick him up after the game and take him. I'm like, what? So Eric Gregg's on this group, right? So now I'm in. I had the Missouri, Missouri Bar and Grill talking to Dana DeMuth. And Dana is sitting there trying to convince me that Elvis was still alive and living on an island in the Bahamas, near the Bahamas. All right. That's Dana. All right. I get up to leave like at 1 30 in the morning. Here comes Eric Gregg in, entering at 1 30 in the morning, purple suit, uh, company on each arm. He walks in, I'm buying everybody in his house a drink, and the whole place erupts. I'm like, this is a bar in Missouri. And this is Eric Gregg. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Um, but his strike zone was enormous. It was probably as big as, the, I don't know, you hear the joke of that, uh, that uh, a team played on him. They, were, they knew, I guess everybody knew he liked to have a hamburger before games. And the team got mad because of his strikes, uh, strike zone the last time they called, he was behind the plate against him. So he came out for a game and someone had put a hamburger on top of home plate. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, such a... It's such a baseball player thing to do. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's wonderful. There was an umpire in a uh, similar era uh, named Derwood Merrill. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was – and I've got a particularly bad spot in my heart for uh, Derwood Merrill because in 1978, I hit 19 home runs. Uh, I hit a ball into the left field seats in the Metrodome. I could see it from the first baseline. He's a third. He's umpire at third base, so he's he's got the foul line, and 
I, I hit it into the second row in the left field bleachers. I can still see the fat guy that it hit right dead in the chest uh, and bounced back onto the field from the second row. And Derwood called it a ground rule double, said it hit the fence or some damn thing. And I mean, it was it was a travesty, and it cost me a twenty home run season instead of, instead of nineteen. So I'm I'm mad anyway. So I'm now I'm later on, we're in the Metrodome. You know, I'm a veteran player, and uh, so I had and you know with a good eye, I had res- you know some respect around uh, around the umpires with you know knowing the strike zone. And I'm hitting one day, and and, and with Derwood behind the plate, and the ball's outside you know, four or five inches, four inches, something like that. And uh, he calls it a strike. I said, damn it, Derwood. Uh, That's not, ball's not a strike. He looked at me and said in his Texas accent, Hall of Fame pitch, bro, Hall of Fame pitch. And I, and I go, guarantee <laughs> that'll keep me out of it. <laughs> you, make, you make that call, you call, you call that pitch, and I'm guaranteed not to get in. Oh, man. <laughs> And Lavelle, you brought up, uh, you know, Rick Hummel, legendary uh, sports writer, baseball writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, covered the Cardinals for many decades, uh, legend in our ranks. And uh, I'm kind of glad that the uh, Cardinals were not in the American League. I don't think I'd be here today because whenever the Twins did play interleague in St. Louis, I would go out with Rick afterward. Uh, For a while, it was the Missouri Barn Grill where you – sit and talk with all the umpires or listen to them yell right. at you, one or the other. Right. Uh, and the, the other place was Mike Shannon opened his own restaurant downtown. That's right. Ballpark. And I tell you what, myself, Rick Hummel and Mike Shannon, closing down Mike Shannon's uh, restaurant and bar on a nightly basis was fun, but it, I would not have lasted if I had done that more often. Yeah. And you think, I think the guy who uh, uh, followed Hummel at the post-dispatch was Joe Strauss. And- yes. And every and we, his nickname was Joe Stress because every time we saw him, he just looked like he had just been through the ringer. And it was because he was out after every game, you know. So um, it, it takes a certain DNA to be a ball rider and to resist the temptations that come with being a ball rider after you get off deadline. The other reality, Lavelle, is that you and I used to get a certain percentage of our information hanging out with people after games, and that yes. just doesn't. That doesn't happen, and I'm not even saying it's not exactly journalism 101. It's probably not the way it should work, but the reality is, you know, I got as much information when I ran into a coach or a player at a bar as I did in the clubhouse. No, you're exactly right. And, that was, I mean, relationship building is part of being a good ball rider, you know, to the yep. point where if you write something negative about a player, he could at least understand it, you know. And I was, you know, when I first got into baseball writing, someone told me it's going to cost you a liver. So what are you talking about? You know, you, I said, there's a lot of drinking after games. And the only way you're going to be able to get stuff, uh, get good information, you're going to have to, you're going to run into ball players and run into umpires and run into team officials. And you're going to have having drink conversations. And, you know, that was back at a time when writers and players would end up at the same establishments after games just because they were popular. You know, yep. uh, it's kind of changed now. I think players do their own thing and i think a lot of them just stay at the hotel now and don't avoid some of the trappings that come with being a ball player not saying all of them do it i think they still you still run into them once in a while just not as much as as, as before but i saw it you know my first couple of years as a ball writer um the benefits of you know just having a, a casual conversation with someone in a restaurant following a game that would serve you well going forward 
Um, I'm not going to say the person's name, but there was a reporter for the St. Paul Pioneer Press uh, in recent years, you know, who who complained to the PR staff that Lavelle bribes Twins players with cigars and bourbon. <laughs> and they were like, but it works. You know, they told, but, it's, but it works. And, and the guy couldn't understand why. You know, um, I can't help that in spring training, there's a cigar bar by the ballpark that I like to hang out at. And I can't avoid the fact that some, there are some players and coaches that show up at the said cigar bar. We end up talking. Well, I mean, it's it, it was kind of an organic uh, thing how it developed. But I go back to the beginning when someone said it's going to cost you a liver. But you can I understand that now, um, you know, but I don't, I don't know in, in today's uh, sports writing world and today's with social media and uh, X slash Twitter and Instagram, you know, it's it's tough for players to kind of get caught outside of a hotel or ballpark. Um, and because stuff like that happens and you don't. And like I said, you don't, I don't run into I, the last few years in the beat. I barely ran into players unless, you know, they were staying at the Marriott and I was staying at the Marriott too. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely changed. No doubt. Phone cameras, inst- uh, you know, the internet, uh, yep. social media, uh, you know, and also players make incredible amount of money. Now they can probably find a better place than pots to go hang out after the game, you know, no doubt, no doubt. Oh, by the way, Jim, our spring, the spring training home next year is Heritage Palms, which is down the road from Potts. Beautiful. Well, there you all go. Those there. Years, all those years I tried to get Heritage Palms, tried to get a place Heritage Palms, I couldn't. Bobby Nightingale shows up. We're going to have Heritage Palms. Hey, Bobby knows what he's doing. No doubt yeah. about it. And by the way, if you don't know, Bobby Nightingale is our new beat writer uh, covering the Twins for the Star Tribune. Does great work. Great guy. Please follow him as well. We gotta get. We should have Bobby on the show at some point. I agree. Good. Okay, we'll make that happen. Uh, all right, Lavelle and I have been yapping. Uh, we're going to give the final thought on anything he likes to Roy Smalley. Once again, thank you to Aquarius Home Services. Thanks to Twill and the Dyna Galleria. Thanks to TSR Injury Law. Uh, we appreciate everyone who listens. Happy New Year again. Roy, what's your final thought today? My final thought is a music one. I just sure. heard uh, uh, you, you, we are all – uh, guitar fans, we're um, and we're all blues guitar fans. That it's my maybe my favorite uh, specific genre. And I've always been a Tab Benoit fan. Uh, if anybody has, if nobody has, how do I say this? If anybody wants to hear some great blues guitar and has not heard Tab Benoit, go go listen to uh, Matchbox Blues um, and uh, see if you don't think that's pretty great. Here's a song by Tab Benoit just heard on the radio the other day uh, that I'd never heard before. He did a great, he does a great cover of I Put a Spell on You. Really Ooh. great classic Tab Benoit guitar riffs, a great organ in there, very moody, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, real moody bluesy, um, no pun intended. And um, so, Anyway, that's it. Tab Benoit. Go listen to him. If you don't know him, if you do know him and you haven't heard, I put a spell on you. Check that out. Okay, boys. I got I got to bring I got to go deep here uh, on guitars. Uh, you just spurred something I probably should have mentioned earlier. So uh, spent some time in the East Coast between Christmas and New Year's visiting family. We took an overnight trip to New York, went down to the village, went to Carmine Street Guitars. 
famous guitar shop, famous guitar builder. He's built for Dylan, for G.E. Smith, for Kirk Douglas, for Lou Reed, Patti Smith. Uh, he's a legend in the in the village. Just a tiny little shop. What he does, Michael Kelly, he goes out and he, when he hears that a, a long-term establishment in New York City is going to shut down and rebuild, he will go there and ask them for the old wood. He will take that old wood and turn them into guitars, great guitars. Dylan used to play one of his strats. Uh, G. Smith plays one of his Telecasters. Uh, he, again, you know, it's a who's who list of guitar players who own these guitars. And they're a little expensive because of the work that goes into it. So my wife and I would go, I wanted to show her the shop. There's also a, a documentary, Carmine Street Guitars. I highly recommend it. It's a really cool look at this. Uh, we go in there. And my wife's kind of blown away because she loves cool looking guitars and they're, they're all look cool. But one of them in particular just jumps out at you, just unique. Uh, it almost looks like burned wood with holes in it. Uh, and yet it looks like a beautiful guitar as well. She basically tells me she's going to buy that guitar for me. And I'm like, I would not have asked for it. And I, I have a <laughs> lot of guitars. I don't need another guitar. I have great guitars. I wouldn't even have thought to ask for it. She buys me the damn guitar. Now I have a Carmine Street guitar and not only is it, and, and here's, the wood came from a place called Chumley's in the village, which is where Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Steinbeck and all these other famous authors used to sit and hang out. It used to be the kind of literary hangout in the, in the village. I now own a guitar that came from wood from Chumley's that, and it is the best guitar I've ever played. It's fantastic. I took it to practice last night. It's fantastic. So go to, go watch the documentary Carmine Street Guitars, and you'll you'll get a feeling for just how cool of a, a thing it is for me to have a guitar like that. Oh, that's awesome! Congratulations, that's really cool. Thanks. I will uh, I will have to post a photo. Uh, I don't know if you guys what social media are you guys on. Uh, you know what? I'll just text you a photo of it. It's better than going on social media. But it, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a very lucky man. Let's just put it that way. So I'm going to wrap up, up this show by saying thanks, babe. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks to Roy. <laughs> thanks to Lavelle. Thanks to Brandon. I'll be back next week and we'll talk more about baseball and music.